the appearance and nothing to do with finances or anything like that, but I'd let somebody appear and I'd let my favourite solicitors uh, do a stint. You didn't let me do one. No, I didn't. I'm sorry about that, Charles. <laughs> you were obviously too busy. <laughs> I do remember thinking at the time, and as things have turned out since then, that I remember, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that case had an enormous impact on the notion of Dolai Incapax. Yeah, well, as far as Dolai Incapax is concerned, I think I'm right in saying that Dolai Incapax was still current at that time. And I, I think that when they changed the law, yeah, that they bore in mind uh, your case particularly. Um, they did a lot of a lot of changes of law. Yeah, took it out this particular case because the, this case was declared uh, by the European courts to be unfair, not unlawful, but unfair. And as a result of the case uh, or the decision, uh, if that case were to happen now, for example, it couldn't take place in number one court in Preston because that was the most frightening court. And I stayed away from that court for years afterwards. It had gargoyles in it and oil paintings of hanging judges, not judges who were hanging, <laughs> hanging, hanging, you know what I mean? And um, it was frightening. And in fact, I never went back to that court until about two or three years ago when I had something far less onerous, far less serious. And I went in there and I nearly burst into tears because it brought it all back. Yeah. It was, I had a drugs case in there or something, but it was absolutely staggering. And you see, if it took place now, there'd be no wigs and gowns. Um, and it would be still, it's cosmetic. Don't get me wrong, any change is cosmetic. It still has to go to the Crown Court, mm. but you would not have, a scenario like uh, Mr. Justice Morland, who was a lovely judge, I can't fault him whatsoever. <clears throat> but the way the trial was in those days, Richard Isaacson said, you know, in years to come, this will be looked upon, he was completely right, it'd be looked upon as unfair. He said, but for now, we have to play our game of poker with the hand we're given. And those were his words. Yeah. And we couldn't do anything about it. No, no. And without going into too much detail, it must have been very challenging for you in the early part of the case, as you say in your book, that it was extremely difficult to get instructions. Oh, it was so difficult because he'd said as much as he was going to say in the interview. Uh, but then, you see, you didn't have child psychologists, appropriate mm -hmm. adults, like you would now in a police station. And he, I think, bottled up once this happened. And he was uh, remanded into a care home, a remand home in Newton the Willows. And Richard and I would go and see him. And the first thing he'd say would be, you're not gonna ask me any hard questions, are you? And it was like drawing teeth. And the only way we ever got anything out of it, I don't know whether you remember years ago, there was a game called Tetris, Game Boy. It was a handset. Oh. And you'd have to, it's like building bricks, but uh, anyway, he loved Tetris. Richard Isaacson loved Tetris. I liked Tetris, but I couldn't play it. It was useless at it. But Richard Isaacson was an absolute dab hand at it, as was John Venables. And what would happen? We'd take a couple of handsets and Richard would play Tetris with John Venables. I'd be sitting in the corner with a council notebook and Richard would be asking him questions. And bit by bit, bit 
like drawing teeth, we would get some instructions from him. Whereupon Brian Walsh would say, have you managed to get instructions from this boy yet? Thinking it would be dead easy saying, what happened, John? Oh, well, this, this, and this. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was absolutely awful. And, uh, but Brian Walsh was uh, not very understanding about things like that. John, um, I was worried about uh, instructing Brian at one point because we'd acted the same team, me, Richard, and Brian had acted in a very big drugs case involving Curtis Warren. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah, and I... Newcastle, in, Newcastle Crown. Yes, wasn't it? yes. Yeah. And uh, I represented a tail end Charlie. Sorry, no... No offence. <laughs> <laughs> <A> tail end chap. <laughs> I represented a tail end chap. <laughs> um, Brian, this guy was 45, about, and Brian used to treat him like dirt. He was so arrogant with him. Terrible. I mean, Richard and I got on fantastically well with him. And he was a neighbour of mine, so I, I still speak to him. And uh, anyway, it was a hung jury in, uh, in Newcastle. And I thought, God, we've got to go through all this again. <laughs> and they listed it for, originally, for a couple of weeks later in Preston. I said, no, please wait until the Bulger case is finished. And th then we can hear it. But Brian was terrible with this client. I mean, he did well for him to get a hung jury and ultimately got him acquitted. And I thought, when we meet John Venables, what's he going to be like? So the day came in May 1993, uh, first appearance at the Crown Court at Liverpool before he gets transferred to Preston. And um, we go to meet the client. And I'm thinking to myself, what's he going to be like with John Venables? Oh, good morning, young man. How are you? He said, um, fine, thank you, Mr. Walsh. So <laughs> Mr. Walsh puts his QC's wig on the radiator. And as we're chatting to him, I watched John Venable's eyes absolutely homing in on this wig. I thought, what's he gonna say? And he says, Mr. Walsh, do you mind if I put your wig on? <laughs> God, what's he gonna do? Certainly, young man, go ahead, go for it. And there's this bizarre picture of John Venable's wearing a QC's wig. And it's something that, uh, I never forgot, but he got on fantastically well with him. I suppose oh, the, these days the legal aid agency would want you to justify those 10 minutes where the um, defendant was putting on a silk wig and why you're yeah. claiming for that. Bill, yes. <laughs> It'd be deducted from the bill, no yeah, doubt. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, in your book, it isn't a book just all about your memories of being a solicitor, although our audience here probably will find that uh, most interesting, unless they happen to be Everton supporters, ah. dare I say. So immediately the audience splits uh, yeah. from those who do and those who don't. And personally, I have no interest at all. I know you have. But, but it, it's fascinating when I read the book and I formed the view that, and we'll talk about this as well, that one of the major inf um, reasons that you wrote the book was to demonstrate that you can live with diabetes one from an early age. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And that's Diabetes. why the book is called Diabetes Easy as Pie. Yeah, which I'm is funny about speaking. But I, I, I sort of saw the support of Everton and how you yeah. grew into that. Uh, and suddenly finding out as a young person that you had, especially in those days, an illness that was difficult to treat 
and not well regarded generally amongst the public, as you said in your book. Well, somehow there was something wrong with you if you were ill with that. Absolutely. Well, don't forget that if this had happened 50 years earlier, I'd have died because insulin only was available for public consumption and refined sufficiently in 1921 in Toronto. And anybody who caught it before then uh, would die. It was like having cancer, God forbid. Um, you could you could eat very limited amounts of food and uh, drag on for a couple of years, maybe. But even in the 60s, insulin was crude. It was uh, it was okay. It was bovine or porcine. It was animal insulin. There was no humulin synthetic insulin. Um, so even though you felt a lot better having had insulin because your blood sugars were coming down, you thought you felt okay, but you didn't feel okay. And uh, I embarked back at school in 1968, uh, went to university in 1970, feeling ill, not right at all, dragging, as I've described it. Didn't enjoy Freshers Week. Um, I, I'd like to make up for it now, uh, but it was very difficult. And throughout the first year at Liverpool University, it was very, very difficult indeed. But I was determined as soon as I was diagnosed that I would not let this defeat me. My main fear was never going to be able to eat Cadbury's chocolate again, because I was a chocoholic and still am, as you can see by my portly frame. Fortunately, this camera only goes down to my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you can see more of me than I think you can. Uh, but, oh, it's all right. I have a hound that's just walked in. Uh, he, he's got nothing to say. He's got no comment. Uh, <laughs> He's still allowed to say no comment. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was determined uh, that nothing would stop me um, watching Everton. That was my first aim. And living a normal life. Uh, I would go back to school in the following term. I would uh, go to university. I'd become a lawyer. And my life would have to be the same. And I've always been obsessed with... Uh, that marvellous film, Shawshank Redemption. And uh, there's an expression is, you've got two choices. You get busy living or you get busy dying. And it's get busy living every time. God, I'm right, is what uh, Red says in it. And that's exactly what I've done. Well, when you, how old were you when you got that diagnosis? Was it about 14? I was 14. And uh, I was saved, really, by my specialist. Uh, my dad was a GP, as you know, and... We'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so my dad was a GP, always referred his cases to Heinz Fuld, F-U-L-D, Austrian gentleman who had escaped Nazi Germany. Um, we got out, well, his partner was Jewish. He was half Jewish, maybe. I had Jewish blood in him, which was bad enough for the Germans. If you had a quarter Jewish blood, you were dead meat, as it were. Uh, anyway, he told his partner to get out of Germany, uh, Austria, and go to England, find a practice, and he'd follow him. And uh, to cut a long story short, he did follow him, and thank God, ended up in Liverpool. So as soon as my blood sugar is clearly high, and my dad goes and does a test on my water, and it's rocketed to beyond the scale, he gets me to see uh, Heinz. and. Uh, I go to see him in his surgery in Rodney Street, which was completely devoid of carpet. It was could have been Gestapo headquarters <laughs> in the war. 
and he had his half moon glasses and he spoke in a very, very Germanic accent. And uh, he, he was frightening until you got to know him and he was the most loving, warm man. But he had a very dry sense of humor. So when he took blood from you, he'd say, uh, hold up your arm for three weeks. <laughs> and after about, <laughs> I think this could prove difficult. <laughs> Let me just close the door. Hounds are barking here. So um, anyway, he, uh, he took a test. And whereas now I've got a, a thing on my arm, which I can tell my blood sugar in a split second. It would take a day or two days to get the results. Anyway, he got the results. It was sort of double what it should have been. Not, not sort of comatose level, but it was too high. And he said, right, what we'll do is for the next few days, no carbohydrates, just proteins, fish, meat, eggs, and then come back in a couple of days and do another test. And it did, it came down. And by the time I went into hospital on the 21st, the Sunday, uh, it was nearly normal. It wasn't bad. So it shows that my diabetes wasn't too bad. But unfortunately, my parting gift to myself as I left home was a Cadbury's cream egg, <laughs> which is packed full of sugar. Anyway, I embark, I just sort of get myself nice and settled in my ward, in my room, little private room. And he storms in, it's like the Gestapo had burst into your house. And he said, do you have something to tell me? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, Dr. Ford. <laughs> he said, well, can you explain to me, please, that in, on Monday your blood sugar was 300, on Wednesday it was 220, and on Saturday it was 160. Today it is 410. <laughs> Now worse than it was when I first saw you. There has been much stupidity. <laughs> you sure this isn't Peter Sellers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come to him later. So, <laughs> no, that's Clusel. Uh, so uh, he got me chained to the, to the bed, really. And uh, he got me on this regime, as he called it, to start with three injections a day. And it did come down quickly. And I started to feel better. I went into hospital weighing six stone 10, which is terribly light. Came out 10 days later at eight stone three or something, which is still light. I, mean, I was only a little boy, but uh, it, immediately the, uh, the weight started coming. It was like baby bio on a, on a dying plant. That's what it was like. And going back to 1921, when uh, insulin was first let loose, if that's the, the crude, unfair word really, uh, on the public. There was a little boy called Leonard Thompson who was dying and then he couldn't lift his head from the pillow. And they gave him his first jab. And uh, amazing. I think the first time may not have worked, but the next day they'd refined a bit more and they found something. And he was, he, he recovered fantastically well. Um, so that he was the first recipient, Leonard Thompson. So he's always been a hero of mine. So as a young boy, with that diagnosis, you must have been very determined and brave to make that decision, which later is enshrined in the Shawshank Redemption. There's an element of that sentiment must have been something that was going through your mind. And you saw, you know, you could have a choice of, well, I could be the sickly child and just muddle through life, or I can be determined to live, as you say in the book. Well, I mean, but my, my, at that age, at 14, 
I just wanted to get back to Goodison Park. That was my main, honestly, it sounds a bit childish. And I think I'd probably be you the same. You were a child. <laughs> I was a child and I'm still mentally a child. Uh, but in order to do that, uh, I had to make sure that I didn't start eating cream eggs willy-nilly. Uh, and I, I wrote to Cadbury's actually and asked them whether or not they could possibly devise diabetic milk chocolate. And they said, well, they can't because it's the milk that contains most of the sugar. So there'd be no point. Right. Other companies did. Um, Boots did a diabetic chocolate and a company called Wanda did it. Uh, but it was pretty, pretty awful. The only uh, diabetic food which I really enjoyed was uh, a jam by a company called Frank Cooper that do that still do jam, I think. And they made diabetic jam. And my mum came into the hospital with this little, you know, like the kind of little jam jar you get in a hotel. Enough for two helpings, maybe, or one helping. And my, we, my uh, afternoon ration in the hospital was two cream crackers, which I'd smother with butter. And mum came in, good old Hazel, came in with this Frank Cooper jam. And I went, oh, lovely, thank you. And I smothered both crackers with the whole jar of this beautiful tasting uh, strawberry jam. Anyway, as I'm munching away, and it's mentioned in the book, I read the bottle and it talks about maximum daily intake. Now, by the time I got to the bottom of the, of the literature, I had already consumed three times the daily intake. <laughs> and it was beginning to have its immediate effect. Now, I hadn't tested my running prowess since I've been diagnosed, but I can promise you that the journey between the ward and the toilet, which was about 100 meters, I'm sure I broke Usain Bolt's record. I got there so quick. Uh, so I'm afraid Frank Cooper was out because it had uh, sorbitol in it or okay. some kind of banned uh, sugar substitute. But anyway, gradually I got used to it. But the hard part was um, weighing out your food. Mm. I was allowed three ounces of chips. What are three ounces of chips? And I'd go into cafes with my mum and dad. With a, My mum bought me kitchen scales. And I used to go into the restaurant with kitchen people who think we're doing drug deals. <laughs> and you'd get some, really in the 60s, you'd get some very strange looks. Yeah. You know, things aren't, and probably now they'd be delighted that you're doing a drugs deal. But in those <laughs> days, uh, they'd probably want a bit of it. Uh, but, or I'd go into the toilet to have my jab because yeah. it was a syringe, hypodermic syringe. Sure. But and you became if you if you weren't careful, you'd become obsessive with it. And uh, just mentioning my dad's friend Monty Fraze, who came over with my dad to Liverpool to meet their respective wives. Uh, in my case, uh, <laughs> I can see you smiling here, Charles. Uh, Hazel married my dad, and Nora married uh, Monty. And I think you're well acquainted with uh, the late Nora. Yes, yes, we were related, yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. And Auntie Nora dented my confidence very badly one night because we were around at her house and uh, she was giving biscuits out and she's saying, oh, David, have a biscuit. Monty, have a biscuit. Lawrence, oh, you can't, you're diabetic. You can't have a biscuit. And, you know, for a 15-year-old or by then, it's, it's upsetting. It's, uh, it shatters your confidence. Yes, he wouldn't, she wouldn't have made a good counsellor. No, I wouldn't uh, recommend it for the uh, Samaritans. No. 
I think I'd jump out the window if she picked up the phone. Uh, good old Nora. So, uh, because of, but to be fair, a lot of people think that diabetics can't eat sweets, can't eat anything sweet, but of course they can if they control it and they, uh, they have the appropriate amount of insulin. Yeah. So, uh, and so you right. know, you, you've been able to demonstrate that you can reach the top of your tree professionally with a significant setback as a 14 year old would have had in the 60s. Yeah, because nobody, I don't pretend for one moment that being told you're diabetic is a cause for celebration. You know, nobody's going to go crack open diabetic champagne the moment they're diagnosed, if there is such a thing as diabetic champagne. <laughs> I doubt there is actually. Uh, I might invent, that might be in the next book. Uh, <laughs> um, so it, you reach a, it's like the stock market, the bottom falls out the market, but then eventually it rallies, it holds its own and then gradually it rallies. And then you think to yourself, well, I've got through first term back at school. I've got through some exams. Uh, I've qualified for university. I've graduated. I've and you did over. that when you were young, didn't you? You were younger than average to get the yeah. qualification. Uh, and I'd stay down a year as well. You probably think I was a whiz kid, but I wasn't. Um, I'd started Liverpool University at 17 and three months or something, five months. And it was too young. I should have taken a gap year or something. But I'm a bit old now to have a gap year. <laughs> I, mind you, I'm thinking about this. And uh, I, when I went for interview to uh, the law faculty, uh, Seaborn Davis, the dean at the time, uh, who was the shortest living MP, <laughs> it's mentioned in the book. I think he was an MP for about three weeks. Oh, not that he was short. Oh, no, he wasn't. <laughs> well, he wasn't, no, he wasn't, he wasn't short, no. He, he, was, he was a nice chap, but he was, a, he was tough. And uh, I, I did my first criminal law exam at Christmas, and the pass mark was 33%. You only had to get your name right. Anyway, when the result came in, he gave me back my booklet, and he had uh, on it 30%, in brackets 33 and he said to me, I've given you a pass mark uh, as an act of charity, but may I strongly suggest that you don't take up criminal law as a profession? Well, that's fascinating because I went to Liverpool University mm. and in my first year, I did crime as a basic thing and I got 34%. Oh, you beat me. By one. And um, that, was, that was the pass mark, 34%. And my tutor mm. told me, please don't be a criminal lawyer. You don't have the aptitude for it. Yes, that's in right. In the um, Law Society finals in Chester in those days, the only yeah. introduction one ever had to crime was you did one bail application. And so I did a bail application in front of a part-time, very plump local practitioner who effectively mm. told me, don't bother, you're rubbish. And that's what he said in front of everybody else. And it's oh. funny how things turn out, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly. Parallel lines. Uh, <laughs> But people knocked your confidence, and if, yeah. you, if you were a lesser character than you and me, you'd be uh, adversely affected forever. And I think that's a very important thing to say to people, isn't it, young solicitors, is you're going to have people that will probably crush you to start yes. with. Yeah. And you've got to be resilient, you've got to be determined, and you mustn't let it bother you too much, because that's possibly the way that the profession was certainly like, was. whether it is now i don't know it's like sitting on a booking bronco you've got to keep on that horse yeah. and don't let yourself be flung off and if you do get flung off you get back on yeah that's the way i look at it 
I, I looked at it the same. The trouble with me is I got on the wrong way round. But that's another story. <laughs> well, it's always good to look over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not a football supporter. No. I don't no. know how many of our viewers are going to be football supporters. But I think we couldn't leave this conversation without mentioning it's hardly the elephant in the room, but Everton Football Club and your connection and love of it. Well, I. My dad was uh, a doctor in uh, near Everton Football Ground, Common Street. And it just so happened that when I was about 10, a patient came in and said, uh, on a Saturday morning, said, uh, Hey, Doc, uh, I can't go to the match today. I've got two tickets here. Would you like to take you and yourself and your little boy? So, of course, he came home and said, Do you want to go and see Everton play Sheffield Wednesday in the FA Cup? So it took me a, a microsecond to agree. And from the moment you went, and you could smell the tobacco in the air and the atmosphere and the crowd. I was smitten, absolutely smitten. And um, I always remember Sir Trevor Jones, who we mentioned before, his son, Glyn, was in my class and he was an Everton fan. And he said to me, do you think one day we might meet Brian Lebone, who was the captain of Everton in the 60s? Oh, don't be ridiculous, it's impossible. These people like gods or Gordon West, the goalkeeper, just dream on, pipe dreams. And years later, um, I remember going to a football cup tie about 1990 in at West Bromwich Albion. And they carted out onto the pitch before the match all the surviving footballers from the 1968 cup final when West Brom beat Everton. And I couldn't believe it. They were on sticks, couple in wheelchairs. And I thought, God, they're mortal, these guys. And if they're mortal, my Everton boys from the 60s must be mortal. And just so happened that shortly after that, I was invited to become a member of the Everton Former Players Foundation, which looks after uh, players who have played one match, even post-war, for the first team. And you just couldn't believe how ill some of them had become. And uh, the guy who devised this was a chap called Dr. David France, who uh, is in America now. Uh, but he he had saved every single Everton programme and managed to get hold of every programme since they were created in 1878. And he's got the world's biggest memorabilia collection. Lovely guy, he's a professor. And he became ill and he said to me, look, I'm not retiring until you agree to take over. So I took over the chair and I was chairman for 14 years. Felt a bit like Robert Mugabe because there were never any elections. But in that time, we did so much good work for former players, paid for their funerals and looked after the widows, that I was asked by Barcelona Football Club to go over to Barcelona and help create a European former players uh, group. It was on false pretenses. I felt so guilty about going over there, but it was all a bit of bullshit. But uh, anyway, I helped to create a European former players association, but... Uh, it was such good fun going over to meetings at the Barcelona New Camp Stadium and meeting players, so that, you know, Johan Cruyff and people like this who I never thought I'd meet, let alone Brian Lebone and Gordon West. And uh, it was just a great adventure. I thought, you know, I took my insulin with me and it just would not deter me. By the time I'd done my first trip to East Berlin in the 70s uh, and got through that, uh, I thought nothing will ever defeat me, diabetes-wise. It never has, and it never will, except old age and death, <laughs> yeah. which is incredible. Fascinating. So, 
what would your advice be to a young person who really wants to be a criminal lawyer or a solicitor for that matter? Mm. Um, what would your advice be to them? Irrespective of leaving diabetes aside now, my advice to them, and it's, it's very, very difficult to say this, but if they're there for the love of the job, go for it. Because there is no more exciting format or direction that you can go in law-wise than criminal law. If you become good and you become an advocate, the buzz of going in front of magistrates and judges is unbeatable. I just love appearing before court, maybe because I'm now in my 60s and I can get away with a lot. A lot of the, universe, a lot of the, uh, the judges were at uni with me and there are very few judges that are older than me now. So I can get away with a lot more than I could before. I've still got to know my sentencing guidelines and I've got to know a bit of law when I go before a judge. Magistrates, slightly different. I mean, I, I do know some law, but I don't have to be an academic when I'm appearing in a magistrate's court. So my advice would be, go for it. But if you're money-minded and you are wanting to be a successful business person, then I don't think it's for you. But it's a shame because it, there is nothing better. There is no greater buzz, if you like, uh, than going to court. And meeting people, because I love meeting people. And being a solicitor as opposed to a barrister, you're down at the coalface. You know, I go to police stations yeah. for the purposes of data law. I go do my <laughs> whatever police station. I mean, I was there yesterday at the police station. And occasionally I like to be there because the public like me. I like them because I, I not to pretend, I show interest in them. You, if you're aloof and you're a snob, you're doomed. You like the Liverpool, you like the comedian from out of town appearing in Liverpool. You'll get absolutely slaughtered. But if you go in there and you can tell, you can see that you're on the same wavelength. And football is a great barrier breaker you know you, you see some guy with a lfc tattoo or something and i said sorry can't represent you you're a copite <laughs> oh come on mr lee i know you got a blue nose <laughs> oh, seeing it's you seeing it's you i'll represent you <laughs> so that breaks the ice immediately um and if they don't like football they will always find something in common cars or whatever yeah. uh, but you've got to know your public you've got to be uh, amenable you've got to be affable and above all you need a sense of humor and if you've got a sense of humor you can do anything talking of a sense of humor mm. you've written a book which we've referred to throughout this interview. I have indeed. and what's it called have you got a have you got it i hold it up for you it's called diabetes easy as pie and it as I've explained, if you manage it, it is as easy as pie. But it, we had to change name because originally I decided three or four years ago to write a book called Diabetes, a Piece of Cake. <laughs> and I wrote it and it came out as Diabetes, a Piece of Cake. And I took it to uh, one of my daughter's mum's house and she said, you can't call it that. I said, why not? She said, because... Did you not know there's already a book out called that? I said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and apparently about 25 years ago, a district nurse had written a book called Diabetes is Not a Piece of Cake. 
And it was all about going blind and your limbs dropping off and wow. all your extreme limbs becoming uh, unworkable, which is a bit frightening, really, for a man. Uh, so I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And she said to me the other day, you were livid. You were livid when you walked out of my house. Well, I was livid. I was furious. All my work up the spout. So I thought, well, at least the inside of the book, the contents of the book is still okay. All the illustrations, beautiful illustrations and photographs of me as a graduate, which wasn't beautiful, uh, were, were okay. All we had to do was change the name. So I thought, uh, diabetes, a walk in the park. That's not relevant. Uh, diabetes, a cakewalk. No. And then Francesca, my daughter, said, Dad, it's as easy as pie. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I said now. That is. So it became diabetes as easy as pie. And uh, I wrote originally a narrative of about 10,000 words. I just couldn't get any more. And I showed it to various people who might be interested. And they all said, it's too, it's too short. You need more meat on the bones. So I was eventually introduced to a chap called Gary Bainbridge, who's a book writer. And during lockdown, towards the end in particular, uh, we'd speak every week on Zoom and uh, we'd do another chapter. He'd tell me about how school was. Tell me about what it was like with your scales. Tell me what uni was like. And gradually we did one chapter per episode in your life. Uh, we did a chapter on uh, court, chapter on Bulger, chapter on Everton and a chapter on Get Busy Living at the end and uh, dedicating it to Nicola, my wife. And we got it to about 45,000 words, which is where it now is. Yeah. And it went on Amazon on the 20th of September. And I, and I think it's doing well. Three weeks, it was up to number 17. Uh, bestsellers in books by lawyers and judges. Don't know how they knew I was a lawyer or a judge. Uh, <laughs> and also it's in another league table for dealing with illness. Yeah. So it's, doing so well. it's available now. It's available now on Amazon. At all good bookshops. <laughs> Sadly not, and I'm trying to work my way into that. Uh, the bookshops won't touch it. I think it's because you've gone down the Amazon Avenue and Kindle. At the moment, I'm restricted to that, but I'm working on it. And I'd love it. I mean, it is so, it's so beautifully shaped and sized. It'll fit in your handbag if you've got a handbag. This isn't an all-male audience, Charles. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a nice Christmas gift. But the important thing about it, joking apart, it is uplifting. It's not only humorous, but it's uplifting. And anybody who has a family member who's diabetic should read it because every time I'm, I've had clients' mothers saying to me, oh, my blood sugar's 23. I don't know how to get it down. I said, well, get your insulin pen out, dear, and just zap yourself with a few units. No, I'll call the doctor. And the amount of money that must be wasted on the NHS, calling the doctor and checking yourself into hospital because your blood sugar's high, when all you have to do is control it yourself is immeasurable. So that's the purpose of the book. Save NHS, save lives. Oh, sorry, I sound like Boris now. <laughs> and keep safe. Uh, but it's, uh, I'm delighted I've done it. I've always wanted to write it. And uh, it's got lovely illustrations and photographs in it uh, of my dad and me and my mum, Nicola and the kids. And uh, I think it'll do well. And I, I want to give uh, a, a big donation to the hospice that, uh, that looked after Nicola, uh, Christopher Grange in Ewan's Way, and also Diabetes UK. Um, although I must admit, I've written to them, uh, telling them about the book, I've not had a reply from them. So I'm a little bit peeved with them, but uh, I'm sure they'll come around when they see how well it's done. And 
and then I'll tell you when the next book's coming out. Well, I can't wait. I loved it. Well, thank you very much for that in-conversation. My pleasure. Mr. Really. Lawrence Lee.